90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing excellent. <laughs> Why is that? We have a new member of our family. Um, so in the past on this podcast, I've added members of my family. <laughs> But this one is furry and four-legged, and his name's Hank, and he's our new puppy. <laughs> and what kind of puppy is Hank? <laughs> well, he's a naughty puppy. No, he's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. He's huge. He's the huge kind. Um, he's five months old and 42 pounds, and the vet was like, my goodness, he's a big boy. <laughs> so <laughs> the DNA test has been administered and sent back already, and... We shall find out. Probably a Pyrenees mix. I'm taking bets now. I'll send you a picture so you can put in your money. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. How are you doing this week? Uh, doing pretty great. Uh, this is, let's see, I went uh, to uh, Central Oklahoma, actually. I was just north of you last weekend for a meeting. Yeah. I figured you were busy, so I didn't hear from you, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't there for very long. And then uh, this week is actually crazy because I'm preparing to do something that I haven't done since I think we decided 2016 or 17, which is I'm not going to go into work for a week. <gasps> I was going to say take a shower, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we're, <laughs> we're pretty excited. Like so it's the first vacation in a long time. And though a lot of it is not really going to be away, you know, it's just going to be doing things that aren't work or yeah, are different forms good. of work, like things around the house. And right. Like, yeah. That physical business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's so awesome. that's, that's always stressful preparing for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I'm sure you deserve it and need it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it will be quite terrifying. I'm actually debating uh, turning off. I, I've had, <gasps> I never do this, but I put in my Gmail footer for the last week and a half or two weeks that oh, yes. I will be out of the office and no, no email, no phone, no nothing. And pretty sure I'm just going to remove the Gmail app for the duration of that. Oh my gosh. Okay. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. Well, it's easier I'm... because my phone died this week, and I can't get a new one for a long time, so I'm running on a really old oh, iPhone 6 right now. That's awesome. Wow. So it's actually the perfect time to do this. Yeah, that's super <laughs> great. Oh, my goodness. How funny. Um, cool. I can't wait to hear how this goes. <laughs> yeah, so uh -huh. join Are us you... next time for my nervous breakdown. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you going to be doing any digging in the backyard? Uh, you know, I might. Okay. I might well, I'm just well. saying, if you are and you find some clays, I think we got a guy you can talk to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So with that outstanding segue, <laughs> uh, we're really excited to be talking to Dr. Andy Elwood Madden about XRD, microscopy, and all things clay and otherwise. Hey, Andy. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. <laughs> so, a Andy, uh, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got into geology? Sure. So I'm a colleague in arms with uh, <laughs> Professor Doolin here in uh, geosciences and in you know, throughout the winding pathway of life, I've made it into kind of working in core facilities where we, uh, you know, basically help researchers of different, all different kinds uh, help out with their research. And so right now I'm also director of our campus microscopy facility. That's great. <clears throat> yeah. So you've been into microscopy and working in these kind of core facilities, but even you know, further back than that, what made you want to become a geologist in the first place? I, I'm sure you didn't aspire to work with XRDs from a young age, or maybe you <laughs> didn't. I'd really like to hear that. <laughs> well, I, <hope> so. <laughs> I was thinking that I'd really love to know the answer to this from you two. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in lower Michigan, where basically everything is just flat 
glaciated terrain. So, you know, there's not obvious rocks around really anywhere. So I have to give a, a thousand percent credit to some amazing middle school teachers, um, you know, one in particular. So, you know, just have to give the, a huge shout out to all the middle school teachers out there. That It's a hard job, but they are changing lives. And certainly mine was changed forever. So, I mean, we we had our teacher hosted a science Olympiad event and I just started doing this rocks and fossils and water quality. And I was just was like, wow, these are, this is fun. These are cool. And then most of all, you know, I, I don't think I can say this though with Shannon here because <laughs> I had a field experience that changed my life forever. <laughs> oh, warms my little heart. <laughs> Where, you know, we, we had to go out uh, for our middle school. We got to go out and stay at a sleepaway camp for a week. And, you know, we did different stuff like lower you into the bog. So you had to bring a special <gasps> pair of clothes. Has, have you ever been able to do that? I mean. Uh, oh, that's no. awesome. <laughs> I fell in a bog once in Scotland. And, yeah, Doug took my picture instead of helping me out first. But, you know. <laughs> Well, you probably didn't have your special, you know, your no. extra pair of bog clothes that you packed to bring I to just, Scotland. I sure didn't. <laughs> and I smelled real bad the rest of the day. <laughs> well, thankfully, we had bog clothes and then we ran straight into the lake after that. But yeah, but one of the things we did was we went on a geology hike and I was just absolutely blown away when our teacher was just like, well, look at the shape of the landscape. Look at the shape of these rocks and pebbles on the ground and Think about all you can learn when you just know a few things to look at. And and after that, I was like, I think I want to do geology. Oh, so. I just got chills, I will say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just got chills from that. My middle school teacher's name was Mrs. Hedge, and it was mm -hmm. the exact same thing. Like, she was amazing. Um, and then my son got to go on an away camp, too. And it was really cool. He came back asking. He went to a place, Andy, where I'm sure you've been, too, down in the Arbuckles. Um, there's a, a YMCA camp down there, Camp Classen. And he got to go there for a week. And they did a lot of geology stuff there. So that makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work for the teachers to put that on. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, as you very, very well know, and... It's just so worth it. And, uh, you know, I just think it's funny what an impression it made on me because, I mean, I know I'm talking to some fellow nerds here, but, you know, seventh, seventh grade me asked my teacher if I could write a paper on manganese nodules in the ocean for no apparent reason. Oh, and so my gosh. he was like, sure, you know. You turned in a paper for no apparent reason. That makes well, me also super excited. I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, it was because he got me excited about geology, yeah. right? Yeah. No, that's super great. I'm pretty sure I did this with my mom and she was just like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> yeah. So, Andy, that, that's a very specific thing for somebody that just <laughs> has discovered they want to learn more about geology. So why manganese naturals? <laughs> I wish I could remember that, honestly, because I've been wondering <laughs> myself. But, I mean, surely you had, you know, random passions when you were in seventh grade. Had? Yep. Oh, I still, <laughs> I still have random passions. Clearly, we all still do the same thing we did in seventh grade, too, which is awesome. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I definitely made a lot of those clay balls all the time. <laughs> Right. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so you wrote this paper on manganese nodules, <laughs> and then at some point when you were graduating high school, how did you decide where to go to college and that this is what you wanted to major in? And you know, were you thinking of a career path at that point, or just wanted to do geology? Yeah, I think it, I didn't have a clear sense of exactly where it would lead, um, but I. I just had this sense, even though I didn't take any earth science or anything in high school, you know, as we know, it's kind of a challenge sometimes with the availability of, of earth sciences in high school. But I just sense my impression from the middle school experiences with my teacher, Mr. Wiersma, were so strong. I just felt like that's what I needed to do. And I've never looked back. Hmm. That's awesome. Because... So, 
John, when you started, you were in, did you started in meteorology and then added or? That's correct. I started meteorology and then added mm-hmm. geology. Oh. And Shannon, were you, were, were you both originally or did I you I was both originally. Well? I got okay. uh, scholarships for both. And I remember like both, it was Fred Carr at the time and um, <laughs> Gilbert, Dr. Gilbert was the director and they're like, okay, well, this is going to be super hard. No one's ever done this before. So we'll give you more scholarships if you keep going. So, so that's what I did. I started in both and got pulled aside and said I'd never be able to do it, but good luck to me. So <laughs> take that, Dr. Carr. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, both of you. Yeah, it's amazing that you did it. I mean, it's less amazing for John because geophysics is virtually meteorology, but... <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, okay yeah we'll leave that for another show well, yeah. yeah i'm not gonna touch that yeah yeah, yeah we should probably <laughs> so so andy along the along the way from uh, high school to three-year undergraduate and even to grad school i'm sure that there were probably some some different turns and jobs along the way w- were there anything that especially was was notable did you always work in geology or did you go somewhere else for a while or how did your career unfold? Sure. I mean, I did all kinds of random odd jobs uh, along the way and including working in the cafeteria at the dorm where I remember on my last day of working in the dishroom, I took my shoes that I wore for washing dishes and I just put them in the dumpster and walked back to my room (laughs) barefoot. Um, (laughs) But no, I I had an opportunity to participate in uh, some undergraduate research, and actually that sort of set the course of what I was interested in for later on in grad school. Again, with you know an exceptional undergraduate mentor um, for research, and I had an opportunity then to work at an oil and gas company as an intern at the same time. So, um, but the main thing was uh, I met someone special at geology field camp um you know so that was that was pretty amazing so okay geology field camp yeah mm-hmm. yeah we definitely um take credit for a lot of marriages that's what i want to say mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. we have several alumni in this same situation <laughs> yeah that's okay awesome. so you so you had these these different jobs and uh, some some life events too along the way. What what did it look like after undergraduate? What made you decide to go on and pursue graduate school? So I will say, Andy, before you answer this, I want to mm-hmm. back up a, a touch because we have a lot of listeners that are at that point in their careers, and it's exactly what you said. Of like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just felt like I wanted to do this. So it's nice that people hear these things, you know, that you have this windy road to get there. But also, you know, how did you decide? Because I think a lot of listeners are in that space and have trouble answering this question, too. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question for sure. And I didn't have a lot of experience or maybe confidence or there wasn't a history of people going to grad school in my family or, you know, so it was, it was unusual, but, um, you know, my undergraduate advisor really empowered me to kind of get involved in the research and feel like I was a scientist and kind of help me understand that I should pursue looking at doing research that I was excited about you know, doing the kinds of science that I was excited about. And even then, I didn't really have a clear idea. Like, I didn't know always, like, oh, I need to be a professor, for example. Um, I was just sort of following the science. And so um, I had an idea of what kind of science that I wanted to do, I thought, for grad school. And and that's how I decided, ultimately, of, like, where I was going to apply. Um, but, and then... You know, after that, um, it worked out that the special someone that I met at field camp, um, my spouse, Megan, she and I were able to go to the same graduate school 
Um, but before that, it, there is kind of a, a funny story where, um, you know, there's that moment when you realize that you're making a commitment sort of together. Uh, so we were at different institutions that went to the same field camp and we were kind of talking about how we were going to spend the next summer um, before grad school. And we were applying for different things and I got offered this internship with NASA at Houston and she got offered an internship again with the USGS in California. So we just decided let's go to California. So I turned down the NASA in, uh, internship and they circulated my resume in California. So after that, we've been sort of tag teaming together ever since. And you know, the, the thing about that, well, and one last thing is that, you know, it, in Menlo Park where the USGS was, it was really during the dot-com boom. And so, you know, prices were going through the roof. So we said, well, you know, I have grocery bagging experience. So if the USGS doesn't work out, I can always just bag groceries. Well, it turns out the the grocery baggers at the local grocery store, you know, made more than I made as a USGS <laughs> physical science technician. But but I had great experience out there. So <laughs> right. that's unbelievable. But <laughs> yep, mm-hmm. uh, I sent my one of my students to Flagstaff to work for the USGS and it was roughly the same deal there. And that was just a couple of years ago. So no, it was awesome experience. That is awesome. Um, so you and Megan, who's a, she's been on the podcast twice. Hasn't she, John? I think she has. Yes. Yeah. yeah got some mm. Catching up to do. Sure do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you guys showed up at OU right when I finally left. Mm. Um, so I graduated in 2006, and then you guys started that next fall, right? Yep, that's right. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. We started um, OU the same time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> so you do some really cool, tiny stuff at OU. Um, where did you start in your research, and how has it evolved over your your long time there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I started with the idea where my uh, advisor told me just to go to the library and don't come back until you have something. Um, <laughs> so I spent about a year in the library reading and teaching classes and things, but uh, kind of came out with this idea that there was a lot buzzing around at the time about nanoscience. And it was kind of this big word that was getting a lot of attention, but it's the idea that when materials get really small, then everything you know about them suddenly changes. And in the smaller they get, the more the properties or the behavior or everything about the material can change. And so I just kind of wanted to ask the question, like, well, what does that mean for geology? Because don't we have a lot of materials that get really tiny out there in the, in the universe? And yes, we do. So that that was sort of the the driving question was then well if if the properties of all of these geomaterials are changing when they get smaller then how does that impact uh, the universe basically? So full disclosure, I've definitely run into Andy's office and said, "Oh God, can you help me understand these Josephson's gates and electron movement?" <laughs> when we did that magnetometer show, John. So. <laughs> Ah, yes. <laughs> we spent some yeah. whiteboard time with um, the yeah, quantum physics of magnetism. <laughs> well, if if we have to do some quantum physics, then I'm going to collaborate. Let's put it that way. So. <laughs> yeah, so when I think of nano, the first thing that I think of is, you know, like Chen said, uh, fabrication of semiconductors. And rocks, I normally think of these these big things. Minerals are, okay, well, they're smaller things. But how do we get geologic nanomaterials? What are some, what are some examples and how do they happen? Yeah, so, I mean, sometimes it can be just like as a mineral is growing, it just stops really small, you know, before it gets, gets big. And even in that intermediate stage, if it doesn't last, if it doesn't stay small for a, a really long time, it can have a big impact while it is small because it's very 
reactive and the properties of it are different. But we found nanomaterials in soils, in in rocks. Uh, sometimes they give minerals their special colors. Um, we they're formed in fault zones when rocks grind against each other. They make little uh, nanoscale powders in the fault zones. Um, they're formed in outer space when you know, when a star explodes and its gases are expanding and, and they start to cool off, then little, for example, little diamonds form in the cloud that's coming off. And, and those can actually make it to Earth sometimes too in meteorites, for example. Yeah, a lot of that dust can also influence climate too, actually, right? Sure. I mean, you know, one of the signatures they had from the the KT impact that uh, influenced the dinosaurs uh, course was a layer that contained nanodiamonds. So that was, you know, that was one of the indicators that demonstrated there was an, an impact event. Okay. So these things are all over and in places we might not think about, but how do you study them if they're so small? You can't use traditional <laughs> microscopy. So how do we how do we find them? And how do we learn about them? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because uh, you know I did I did buy a little vial of nano diamonds when we were working on on uh, nano diamonds, and it 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 was about ninety dollars for a vial of nano diamonds. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and it just it just looked like a little gray powder. So wow. Um, <laughs> But I told our dean, uh, I said, when I rode the elevator with him, I said, well, we're prospecting for nano diamonds," <laughs> As if, you know, that could be a lucrative sort of thing. But actually, <laughs> it's very labor and time intensive, as you as you would point out. So, for example, with with looking for nano diamonds, the analogy we use is like if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, then the easiest thing to do is just burn down the haystack. And then the only thing left is the needle in a, you know, in a bunch of ash. So, so there's all kinds of strategies like that where we can uh, digest the sediment or we actually, uh, a student uh, who's now a professor at Wichita State University, Andrew Swindle, he designed a device where we could actually collect uh, particles that are floating in the groundwater directly and then put them into uh, some electron microscopes. And because you can't see anything when you're just looking at it. So that's that's how I got involved in all the microscopy business. So we've talked a lot about SEMs on here, Mm -hmm. um, but we haven't talked anything about XRDs because we don't know anything about it. That's why we want to hear from you. (laughs) I highly doubt that, but okay. (laughs) We don't know as much as you know about it, for sure, because this is one of the tools you use, right? Yeah. So, you know, because we're studying uh, earth materials and planetary materials, there tend to be crystalline and X-ray diffraction or diffraction in general is one way that we actually can identify, uh, figure out what materials we're working with. So what is x-ray diffraction how well what what can it tell us about a sample and how do we how do we get that information sure so i mean diffraction is basically you know the interaction of of waves with a pattern is one way to put it you know so if the the size of the wave or the the wavelength um, matches the size of a pattern then you're likely to get some kind of diffraction so we get light diffraction in all kinds of situations in daily life where you can, you can see a, like a beam of light being affected somehow. I'm thinking like if you've ever seen like headlights through a screen door or something like that. Right. Um, so in this case, because what we're trying to learn or what, when they designed the technique, they said, well, we want to know what's inside materials. And so um, materials, if they're made out of atoms, then we want to use something to shoot it with, some kind of wave that has a wavelength about the size of the patterns of the rows of the atoms in the crystal. 
which happens to be x-rays. So, you know, when we hit a crystal that has a pattern of atoms in it with an x-ray, then you get x-rays coming out in special directions. And that gives us a fingerprint of the pattern inside the crystal. So it's not using x-rays like we would traditionally think to look into something, to penetrate uh, through something and create a projection, like when you get a medical x-ray. It's actually using the the property of the wave-like nature of x-rays? Yeah, I mean, it, when you get down to it, it's pretty cool because we don't actually detect the beam sort of going through the sample the way the way we do the technique. We we look at the beam that's sort of coming off at certain angles. And why is it doing that? Well, when the X-ray beam hits the sample, it actually causes all of the electrons in the sample to start wiggling. And then when they wiggle, they re-emit X-rays of the same same energy, basically, in all around them. But then those X-rays are going to interfere with each other and destroy each other, basically, except at very special angles. And so... And those special angles, we can collect the x-rays and and say, okay, well, we know that this crystal has a certain uh, pattern, then we can identify it. Okay, so what's the what's the actual physical apparatus yeah. look like to do this? Because we're, we're shooting x-rays and we're picking them up and measuring angles. Uh, this sounds like a pretty involved piece of equipment. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it hasn't changed tremendously uh you know it was invented in the early 1900s and it's not super sophisticated so like imagine yourself uh sitting there and then take your right you you know you take your your right arm and kind of put it up to your side up at a 45 degree angle and then take your left arm and put it to the other to your left side at a 45 degree angle so now you're you're kind of making a y shape with your arms so when we do an x-ray diffraction experiment, you put your sample kind of in the middle where your neck is. Um, and your say your right arm is a x-ray tube that makes x-rays. And your left, or your, your right hand, and uh, your left hand is a detector that counts x-rays. And all you do is turn the beam on and then move both of your arms at the same speed up until... Uh, until they're almost vertical. And so if you think about what you just did, you're just counting x-rays as a function of the angle between you know the source of x-rays and the detector. And that's all it is. This sounds like seismic. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, is, this a, is there a direct analogy to a critical yeah. angle here? <laughs> I mean... Hmm. There's a lot of yeah similar yeah mm-hmm. yeah that is interesting. Um, I also like to imagine all of us doing that at that same time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're driving. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Unless you're driving. <laughs> That's so really this, cool. Hmm. Was this something that geology came up with, or who was this material science? Uh, who originally came up with this technique? Yeah, who stuck something and x-rayed it and did this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are physicists and, and chemists, but to be honest, what did they study most of the time? Come on. You know, they studied minerals because <laughs> <laughs> crystals are cool. You know, so the Braggs, the, the Braggs that, uh, you know, well, Von Laue that kind of first came up with one way and then the Braggs came up with a way to simplify it. And then they're doing, you know, rock salt and... And then, you know, very famously, Linus Pauling um, studied things like clay minerals and other <laughs> other fun crystals, even though he was a chemist, because they're cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I really, I really feel it's like, go get something to put in this machine and some buddy just like ran out and got some salt or some dirt because that's what was there. Uh, <laughs> So the sample prep, though, for this, like, can you really just stick a piece of salt in? Like, what do you need to do for sample prep to do this? What does your sample look like? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it kind of depends on what you want to know. Just like a 
I'm imagining a lot of geophysical things too. You might set up your source in your detector or something differently. But so there's two main ways. One one way is to use sort of a larger single crystal, and um, that's usually what people are doing when they're trying to solve atomic structure. So they want to basically use the pattern of X-rays that are diffracted to figure out inside the crystal where all of the atoms lie in, in the pattern of that mineral. So that way you usually do a single crystal. We are usually taking kind of complex mixtures or materials where there's a bunch of different stuff in there and we're not really, we're just trying to figure out what's there and maybe how much of all the different things. So we want to get all of the different possible crystals to show up in our pattern. Um, and so we want like every possible angle to show up. So we're going to crush it and grind it and get it down to a very, very fine scale powder. And that way you can imagine like each tiny, now we've got like thousands of crystallites. So each of them is potentially giving an X-ray at just the right angle to come out to our detector. So does that, it, when you've got minerals, you know, like say uh, things that you would get in clays, these sheety, you know, some, mm -hmm. some muscovite or something, do those tend to lay preferentially and give you some problems with that technique or do they still get jumbled pretty well? No, you're right. A lot of layered materials, it's hard to make a random powder with them. So sometimes we uh, we do our best and then we can account for that when we're processing the data that there's some preferred orientation, but also we can take advantage of it. So, you know, if we're, for studying layered materials, sometimes we, we try to get it to lay flat and then we get a lot better, uh, you know, signal from specifically from the layers or, you know, honestly, just in this last week, for example, in the X-ray diffraction lab, um, we've looked at some random slag that, somebody brought to us uh, that came from a refinery. They wanted to know what was in it. Uh, so that we ground up in a random powder. Uh, we, we had some uh, graphene and graphite from a chemical engineer, and then they had a graphene film. So basically we just took this, if you imagine, I'm trying to think almost like a piece of paper, except it's black. And we literally just stuck it down on a slide. <laughs> <laughs> um and in and then basically when the when you move your arms up like we're doing there will be like one angle that you'll get like a really big peak and that corresponds to the the spacing between the layers in that film and then we have somebody who's just getting going from electrical engineering right now and they are doing something called molecular beam epitaxy. So they're basically what they're doing is they want to build like a device, like an infrared camera, you know, that detects heat signatures. So they grow individual atomic layers on top of like a silicon computer chip, you know, a semiconductor chip. But that how do you, you know, you look at it like, how do you know that I grew another crystal on top of that crystal? X-ray diffraction. So they just put their little the chip like directly on a slide, put it in the machine and they can see the kind of the layer in there that they grew. Huh. Wow. So this isn't destructive. I mean, except for the grinding part. Except for the grinding <laughs> part. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. For the, for the most part, things uh, make it through without being affected. If um, still, safety first yes <laughs> absolutely um i imagine that there is when you get this you know picture at the end i mean is there just an empirical comparison that you make and be like oh this pattern matches that it's this thing yeah i mean i don't I don't have a lot of experience with seismic, but I feel like it maybe it's kind of similar where you you get your bunch of, of wiggles in your mm -hmm. 
travel times and then you start like well let's make a model is basically all we have is we know how many x-rays we collected at each angle and that's that's the information we have so we basically we can we can um build a physics-based model where we know certain minerals or certain materials we can predict what kind of x-ray diffraction pattern they should give and so we can compare our observed data with a synthetic model and come up with our best fit but it's still just a best fit yeah that sounds exactly like seismic (laughs) (laughs) not like paleomagnetism at all not at all (laughs) (laughs) so it's not like on csi then where they you know put a dirt uh, sample into a machine and it comes out as ah this is from this one valley uh, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of fitting and it, I guess how much do you have to know about what you think is in the sample to start with mm-hmm. or how much can you get away with just saying well what is this yeah I mean that's such an important thing is that rarely you want to you don't want to jump to conclusions based on just that if you have any opportunity to collect other information so you really want to try to treat the sample in different ways and measure it again to eliminate certain things maybe or you know use as many other techniques or chemical analyses or even just read about the stuff where you got it from and see what other people found um because yeah you you could definitely you you could definitely have a non-unique uh situation so they actually have an international competition in quantitative x-ray powder diffraction of minerals, which I have not participated in. It's a huge time commitment. Um, but they, you know, the winners will kind of go through all of the different methods that they use to identify it and come up with the, the solution. And, and nobody's going to win it if they just do, if they just use that one method. That's hmm. amazing. There's a competition. Like, do you, they, give you a thing and you have to figure it out and everybody gets the same thing is that oh yeah it's the you know the olympics of quantitative mineralogy (laughs) i had no idea this was a thing oh my gosh (laughs) yeah people take it pretty pretty seriously as you know they're pretty proud when they win and and there's actually papers published showing where people talk about that one of the factors that goes into success, they say, is the experience of the... Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of wondered about that, right? Because you eventually you might start to say, well, oh, I know what that wiggle means. Mm-hmm. Yep. That makes total sense to me. Um, and as I'm sure John feels the same way, that's so frustrating like first starting out and being like i just want all of that experience right you know you can't you can't rush it at all it only comes with doing it so yeah to get ten thousand hours of experience you must give ten thousand hours exactly and it's like i just want to know it all now i had no idea there was a competition but i am going to say that i'm probably gonna change what i do in science now because i'm highly competitive and this sounds amazing <laughs> I mean, we're gonna have to come up with a team name and make t-shirts and hats and stuff so. oh we're pros at that that'll be yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> that is so cool hmm. i had no idea who knew um yeah <laughs> so when <laughs> you said this is a pretty old technique and obviously we're not still using the, the exact same equipment, and it sounds like when you're talking about making models and trying to fit them, that you're probably using some some software to do that. Is this this is a dangerous term, but is it fully developed? Is is XRD everything XRD is going to be from now on? Have we reached the limit that physics has imposed, or do engineers still need to get back to work? <laughs> get to work, John. What are you yeah, taking a vacation exactly. for? <laughs> right. <laughs> You had one but four I'm... years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it, so the basic experiment is similar and people are finding, you know, creative ways to do it a little bit differently or have some kind of attachment that heats your sample while you're measuring it or has some kind of way that you're sampled. But for the most part, a lot of the innovations now are in the, like the detectors, the sensors where, 
you know, for the most part, you're, we're only de detecting even a fraction of the x-rays that are even hitting the detector. Um, you know, so just, you know, tenfold improvement in just going from one detector to another uh, in the kind of signal. And then the next couple of years, tenfold more improvement. And then what do you do with the data? Absolutely. Like computation is, is huge and, and game changing in terms of, of modeling and how we're going to use this data and then how we're going to incorporate this data with our other kinds of data that we've talked about. Um, so, and now people are even using like AI and ML to like predict different things, um, you know, in advance, let's say of different kinds of materials and, and come up with sort of synthetic engineered materials that will have certain properties. So. Okay. So there's still, still some room for improvement and with a better detector is that, you know, if you say, okay, to get an adequate an adequate spectra from mm -hmm. this, I need to measure every angle. You know, let's say you're going to divide 45 degrees up into 0.01 degree increments. I don't know what would be a, a typical number mm -hmm, here, but mm -hmm. do you say, okay, at each of these 0.01 degree increments, I need to count for 20 seconds or a second or two minutes, or how does, how does that actually work? And is that where detectors are helping? Sure. I mean, that's definitely part of it is that uh, signal to noise ratio increases with the square root of time. So, you know, the longer, the more x-rays you get uh, as signal compared to noise, then the more significant your data is and the more you can get out of it. Um, so definitely that. And then also sort of the, if you think about x-rays coming out of your, so you've got your, your sample sitting on your neck take your hands and kind of put them on your neck and then have them sort of come out from your neck representing a spherical wave. So as that wave is moving away from the sample, it's expanding and it actually makes these cones of radiation. So if, if we can sort of efficiently collect more of that cone and process it instead of using just sort of a, a two-dimensional slice through it, so there's a lot we can do with that, sort of getting getting more in the third dimension, let's say. Okay, so 3D XRD. I never have even... <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, there's, <laughs> thing, the, there's things called area detectors, uh, you know, for example. So in, instead of imagining just like counting in one spot, that you, know, you can count over an area, um, is for an example. That sounds like a lot of math. <laughs> yeah, um, mm. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. We're... Uh, I wanted to revisit that part about talking about what's coming out of that. I mean, it sounds like sensors will help with this. But, you know, are these, like, XRDs unique in their solution? Because it's like in gravity when you're looking at that. It's non-unique. And therefore dumb. No, I'm just kidding. But, but you know, it's a non-unique solution. Like, how much do you have to know to read this? If it's not just, like, comparing to this empirical book of pictures. Yeah, I mean, so the let's say our, our database has something like 400,000 entries in it. And it will tell you all kinds of crazy things if you just let it run by itself. But, <laughs> but even sort of basic tuition, intuition, you know, I always tell people that, um, you know, they're pretty sound in their jobs, at least for a while, the computers aren't, haven't taken over yet because, uh, you know, the human ability to sort of understand the context of things and bring in other information that's relevant, you can really get to the solution a lot faster. So, okay. Yes. Okay. So this is not the only piece of equipment that you use though for your studies, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like we were, you know, saying you don't want to just use one kind of information and actually x-ray diffraction is not particularly good on nanomaterials that are really small. So when we are doing diffraction on tiny materials, we usually do it with electron microscopes. Okay, and we've talked a lot about electron microscopes on here, but you've done way cooler stuff. Um, 
<laughs> with that. And I did want to talk to you about, you know, you're running this Samuel Roberts Noble microscopy lab at OU. And that's a, a lot of equipment. Um, what does that sort of microscopy lab look like? Because it's not just one big room with all this stuff in it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, so a lot of these microscopes kind of need their own room, you know, for sure. And uh, so some of our transmission electron microscopes, for example, run at 200,000 volts. Um, So, you know, the one, the microscope itself is uh, pretty tall. It's taller than we are. And then it has all the control panels and the knobs and then all the the vacuum pumps and the high voltage tanks and the power supplies. So in the chillers and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's kind of a handful for one piece of equipment. Um, And so, yeah, we've got a basically different microscopes have their own room. So (laughs) (laughs) they don't they tend not to share rooms. And yeah, the is I mean we've talked some about uh, microscope maintenance on here before, but <laughs> I, I imagine trying to keep all of all of this equipment running, especially when you have a lot of non equipment dedicated users coming through, can be a pretty big challenge. Sure, and I mean I can guarantee you that if you had to drop a transmission electron microscope off in Antarctica and come back in a couple months, it will not be working. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't recommend trying that but. Just, you've been listening in on some of our conference calls <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah no you're absolutely right I mean it there's uh there's a lot of working parts and and a lot of maintenance and a, a lot of uh you know back and forth with service engineers and with we've got some some folks we know that have a lot of experience and a big community of people who tend to be really helpful when somebody posts and, and says, I'm experiencing this problem. Now what do I do? So, <laughs> What is under the microscopy lab? Is it just these SEMs and TEMs? Is it other microscopic fun stuff? Yeah. So in our case, we've got three transmission electron microscopes and four scanning electron microscopes. And then, Right now, our big uh, light microscope is a, a scanning laser, a laser scanning confocal microscope um, that also has a multi-photon laser, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, so we, a lot of the, mostly on the biology side, but but also some uh, engineers, some aerospace engineers, and some biomedical engineers use a lot of the advanced light microscopy as well. I definitely had to look up confocal microscopy <laughs> just then. <laughs> I say the that whole thing of confocal multi-photon that all sounds very yeah, that very sounds... Doctor Evil. Yes. <laughs> what kind of thing are you building, Andy? <laughs> we're, so yeah, we're building a new microscopy lab <laughs> for nefarious purposes. For nefarious purposes. <laughs> Well, it, you know, appropriately located in a volcano, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, the heat and vibration there are very favorable for <laughs> microscopy. So, <laughs> so <laughs> what are some of the most interesting or neatest things that you've put in a microscope? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of being a core facility, we get to see all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, everything from you know, cancer cells to metals that have been 3D printed, Um, you know, but in terms of my own work, I feel like having a chance to work on the nano diamond project was, uh, was very cool because just the idea that there are these teeny, teeny, tiny uh, crystals of carbon that are actually diamonds. And then when they form, when you see them in the electron microscope, they have kind of these gorgeous twins that they form sometimes that are, are just really, uh, really exciting. And they're so hard to find that when you do find them, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. How big is a nano diamond? Yeah. So, I mean, 
there's this stability range for diamond specifically you know that extends over a very small nanoscale range in terms of you know when you think about the all the different kinds of carbon you've mm-hmm. probably heard of like graphite and graphene and graphane and stuff like that so there's kind of this range of a few nanometers up to say 20 nanometers um, where nano diamonds tend to live so it's you know if you think of a, a human hair being like a thousand nanometers to five uh, five thousand nanometers so it's pretty small yeah tiny hmm. yeah it's uh many orders of magnitude below what i normally <laughs> <laughs> normally have to think in it. it's just mind-blowing uh so with all of these uh, new xrd tools and microscopes uh, what is the thing that is coming that you're most excited about sure i mean actually this week right now i'm working on a project uh with you know everybody from the folks from the center for quantum research and technology to biomedical engineering and Uh, materials engineering and catalysis and what we're working on is a project related to it's called aberration corrected electron microscopy so you know if you've heard of like in my in your eye you might have an astigmatism or something like that but in ultimately the resolution of some of these electron microscopes is limited by certain lens aberrations Um, so we're we're looking to acquire an aberration corrected electron microscope where literally, you know, the, the resolution will be such that we can look at individual atoms and then we'll have spectrometers and things where we can interrogate it and not only say, okay, which atom is that one atom, but then, you know, what is its valence state and how is it bonded to the things around it? What is the magnetic field around it? Um, and in terms of everything from geosciences to quantum uh, devices and things like that. It'll just really unlock all kinds of new uh, types of research we can do. I just taught in, I'm teaching a paleo mag seminar, you know, and we were talking about like electron clouds and things. And it was one of those things that I feel like is, I was sort of lied about how they work, you know, because our understanding of like the electron clouds and how they work has changed since I was, you know, in high school chemistry and some of the microscopy around like looking at actual like magnetic domains within crystals is really cool to me. Totally. And there's a lot of really creative ways that people are using types of signals. You know, there's a lot of innovation to be honest and people, uh, the tools help, but then also people are just creative. Yeah, that's that's one of those. Yeah, to go look at these pictures, these creative ways that people are doing things is always sort of one of those things. When I get bored, I'm like, I'm going to look at these microscopy pictures. <laughs> but um, one thing we always like to ask everyone, Andy, is then this is a good segue into that that last conversation. There is where do you think that this field is going to be 10 years from now? Yeah, I mean, so what we're trying to do at the university, what we're envisioning 10 years from now, you know, here is that ultimately we we feel that these kinds of tools for atomic scale, like you think about one of the ideas of nanoscale technology is, you know, kind of like a replicator from Star Trek, right? Where if you can build and understand the basic building blocks of things, maybe someday we'll be able to just build anything we want from the ground up. Um, so the, the idea of fabricating things atom by atom, characterizing things atom by atom, and then interfacing that for understanding everything from geo to bio to physics, you know, just that it's kind of a cross-cutting thing. So we we're thinking about kind of this idea where these cross-cutting tools and ways of thinking will sort of transcend individual disciplines and bring different kinds of people together. And um, I think that's one way, one you know, way we're headed where people will just work together to figure out really big problems and, and do cool things, e- even if they have kind of a wide-ranging background. I 
definitely want a replicator <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm going to get back with you in 10 years and demand that I... <laughs> I'll, um, I'll build a model. So. Okay. All right. That's well, as long as you're standing on the other side, like making the food that I'm yelling at it to replicate exactly. for me. <laughs> yeah. well, about we'll it. be on show 800 and something by then. So <laughs> at that point, we'll, we'll have you back uh, for an episode called Where's My Replicator? <laughs> Not even kidding. That's absolutely happening. <laughs> but, but you all are working on the teleporter I ordered, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the transporter. It's almost there. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I only lost two tails on my cats this week. <laughs> <laughs> they grew back. It's fine. <laughs> well, uh, with that, I think it's time to transition over to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> it's such a little tiny cowbell. <laughs> the non-TSA approved, but still travel size right. cowbell. Ex- thanks to exactly. Tim. Exactly. I love it, Tim. Thank you. Um, so, Andy, my segue for this is that my favorite thing we ever put in the SEM was a cicada wing. And mm. it looked so awesome. And I always say that if I didn't do what I do now, I would love to be an entomologist. And that was the inspiration for this week's fun paper <laughs> well calling all ugly bugs because the the annual ugly bug competition for the oklahoma microscopy society is on so oh schools are schools are submitting their bugs to see which one will be the ugliest when it's imaged by scanning electron microscopy so <laughs> uglybug.org oh my gosh is this like crowdsource voting it well, right. Once the oh, once yes. the images of the bugs get will get posted on a website, and then people can vote on their ugliest. Oh, so. I'm super excited about. We'll that. be discussing I, that. I think exactly. <laughs> but how do you decide? How do you decide which is ugliest? I know you got to use the math, which is what these guys did. <laughs> I think this I, I think is you hilarious. need a Likert scale. Uh, exactly. Uh, that's what we've learned from reading all social science papers is <laughs> any problem can be solved with the appropriate and judicious application of Likert scales. <laughs> this paper is no different. Arachnophobic entomologist, when two more legs makes a big difference by Richard Fetter. <laughs> and this was an Ig Nobel winner. Um, it's from... 2013 and this is an american entomologist but i am obsessed with spiders i love them i think that this is maybe what i would study if i were an entomologist and so i just thought this paper was super funny (laughs) yeah this was this was great and i loved the the close to home at the mcpherson comic at the first (laughs) Uh, because exactly what we're talking about here uh and we'll, we'll of course have the paper linked in show notes but if you work with bugs every day, if you're an entomologist, does it make sense for you to be afraid of spiders? They're just two more. It's not like you're not used to working with non-bipedal things. Uh, and that's what this paper examined to study with, yes, nothing less than the standard fear of spiders questionnaire. <laughs> the FSQ as it gets <laughs> abbreviated throughout the paper uh i'm so sorry john these are clearly excel plots and you're very upset about them i know but (laughs) yeah we'll we'll forego that just because i love that the axis on one is disgust to fear i know (laughs) (laughs) oh this was so crazy to me that any entomologist would that studies arthropods would be scared of spiders <laughs> so yeah um a lot of people were scared of spiders i mean not everyone but still and i loved the very in-depth discussion of like how this got forwarded around the entomology community <laughs> right and it went too far and it got forwarded to these people that didn't work <laughs> on on something so they had to throw out all that data because he was only specifically looking for (laughs) yeah these certain entomologists which i thought was really funny (laughs) well then they go into why are you afraid of spiders is it that they have more legs is it that they uh, there's some story you know you woke up and there's one in your mouth or like (laughs) 
where where did this come from? And one of the categories was being tormented by your siblings. Oh my gosh, yeah. I have many fears, none of which are spiders that stem from that, I will say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, many fears. Toilets being one of them, actually. <laughs> but that's another show. Right. And uh, then I-, I would love to know what the... Well, first of all, what's the geologist equivalent of this? <laughs> what's the geologist scared of that they shouldn't be? Ooh. Mm-hmm. There's bound to be... Uh, non-unique models. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, those oh, are yeah. infuriating. That's disgust. I on my disgust <laughs> ratio. <laughs> and then they did this uh, ranking of a bunch of different animals, you know, butterfly, dragonfly, octopus, bear, uh, <laughs> And spiders were next to last, uh, with ticks only having more universal dislike. And again, this is a plot I would love to see of, uh, you know, rock type or, or mineral yeah, no, uh, no amongst geologists. Carbonates are at the bottom. Um, <laughs> why does mosquito rank above spider? Come oh, on, people. I had this very is... strong feelings, yeah. Yes, that is not okay. Um, I love those little jumping spiders. That's what they're called. Those little black ones. They're my f- one of my favorite animals in the world. They're fuzzy and black. Sometimes they got little white spots on their back. And I think they're the cutest little things. And they move so, like, weird. And then they come at you with their little front legs up. And I think it's <laughs> adorable. I have so many pictures of these things. Like, Sorry, you guys just found that out about me. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, and why Jumping are dogs sp- number seven? I know. <laughs> Below B. Below Who B. Who are these entomologists? <laughs> no, I was I was a little bit upset about the earwing because <laughs> I thought I thought I've been saying it wrong my whole life. I thought here this entomology paper. Uh, so. <laughs> But I guess it's just a typo. It is an earwig, which is my least favorite bug. So that goes goes to the bottom for me. Earwigs are totally disgusting. I completely agree. Like, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. What's going on with their butts? It's not okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there are so many of them around here. But yeah, like, this is... Do you guys hate spiders? No don't like them but i don't hate them why don't you like them i just told you how cute they are (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna go with uh, way up here (laughs) i'm gonna go with you know way they move being pretty high up there based on the categories in this paper Mm. 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 i was working out on on the back deck uh this last week and i realized all of a sudden that there was one on my neck about the size of a quarter (gasps) oh um and i did have kind of a a sudden reaction i don't necessarily dislike them but i don't think i want them climbing on my neck so this is one of the things they talked about was do you have a different reaction with spiders versus other bugs and that was pretty high like most people said yes like they're more surprised they don't want to be surprised by them mm-hmm. yeah and one, one person even that worked with bees and wasps <laughs> said <laughs> that they would rather be stung by the bees and wasps than the potential of a spider bite from a spider crawling on them oh, who was this person that dealt with maggots and said that they would rather have a handful of maggots than have to get close enough to a spider to kill it <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. And yeah, so they say most outdoor spiders were the least offensive were the hoppy spiders. Those were like the ones that I'm talking about, right? And or we were from a distance. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Worrisome were subterrantula sized hairy spiders. <laughs> like <laughs> like wolf spiders. But again, I love wolf spiders. They have so many eyeballs and they're the weirdest looking things. I I chase them around. I think they're great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so in the geologist scale, where are more circles on this? <laughs> I don't hate more circles that much. I hate ternary diagrams from IGMET. Sorry, Barry. <laughs> so, Andy, what's your uh, what's your category that you would put on the geologist chart here? Oh gosh, I mean that's uh, pretty much anything geophysics. I'm just. <laughs> 
Ouch. Uh, probably pale, paleo mag. Um, yeah, look, for as much chemistry crap talking as I do, I deserve this. It's fine. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't have a strong thing to put here, but hmm. You right. clearly weren't traumatized by ternary diagrams like I was. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> oh. oh, well. What's yours, Andy? John? Oh, oh no, I'm going to say, um, well, let's see, if it's if it's for me, not for what I would put on there for yes. geologists in general. Ooh, that's. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say things that I have an aversion to. Would be yeah. stuff uh, like all of the fancy isotope things because I don't understand them. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I'm going to put those as I have an aversion to it, and the cause is I don't understand it. <laughs> but you don't, you're not revulsed. <laughs> revulsed I'm not revulsed it. by it. I just find it very confusing. Just a little bit of disgust and some fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, high on the fear. Gotcha. High on the fear. <laughs> oh yeah, this is um, this is a great paper, as all the Ig Nobel winners are. But um, it's fantastic. But it shows you that even if you are arachnophobic, you can, you know, still be an entomologist that studies arthropods. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, well, uh, I wanted to say thanks for taking the time to to join us and educate us and also a, a personal thanks to both you and Megan because you both had a, a large influence on the path of my career and the classes and out of class work that I got the opportunity to do with you so I just wanted to say thanks for that and thanks for taking the time to join us yeah it's thanks this is great huge privilege to be here uh, thanks for what you're doing with the podcast and, and thanks for inviting me all right so Shannon if folks have collected their own XRD <laughs> data and they would like to send it in or they have thoughts on what they would put on their geologist's FSQ <laughs> equivalent, how can they send those in? Uh, yeah, send those ternary diagrams our way. Um, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Um, if you're hanging out on the Slack channel, you can post in there. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping great interviews like this going. Uh, you can support us on Patreon too, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember... Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 